seminar. Treat it like a seminar. Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. It is indeed. I am Kiss. And I am Damon. And we are here. We are here wherever you are, bringing you the second episode of our collaboration with the UIC Social Justice Initiative, where we're sharing the conversations that make up this year's Sawyer Seminar with the theme, Radical Care, Real Alternatives. So we kicked it off last month with the one and only Dr. Barbara Ransby and Dr. Stacy Sutton. On this episode, Stacy talks with Nick Theodore, who is a professor at UIC and director of the Center for Urban Economic Development there, as well as friend of the show, general brilliant person and visionary movement worker Rich Wallace. Um, they break down this new report that the two of them wrote together about the informal economy, uh, what that term means, the work of Each Chicago, which is the organization that Rich uh, founded around the workers in the informal economy, uh, how this connects to economic patterns around the world, and what we need to be doing to make sure that the workers outside of our formal economy in Chicago and Illinois have the resources and the protections that they need. So shout out to, to Rich Wallace, who, who's been a longtime friend of the show and a deep part of the community, and is also you know a part of the, the National Movement for Black Lives leadership team. So I'm always encouraged and excited to get any of his perspective. Um, and we encourage you to go deeper and check out the report at eatchicago.org. And enjoy this next episode with the Sawyer Seminar as we continue in this exercise of breaking down some of the institutional walls of knowledge production and information sharing. All right, y'all, let's get into it. Episode two of the Sawyer Seminar with Rich Wallace, Stacey Sutton, and Nick Theodore. Let's get it. School of more stays like I'm doing a seminar, I'm doing a seminar, I'm doing a seminar. <laughs> We're here for the second episode in our Sawyer Seminars podcast series, and I'm Stacy Sutton, and I am joined, excitedly joined, by Richard Wallace, who's the founder and director of Equity and Transformation, also known as EAT, as well as Nick Theodore, who's a professor of urban planning and policy at UIC, and he's also perhaps... Um, known most broadly uh, within the academy as one who's really contributed significantly to work around informality and informal economy. So they're here to talk about a, a new report that just came out um, that really features the work of equity and transformation. And the report is Survival Economies, Black Informality in Chicago. So I know that their, their bios were introduced in the beginning of this, so we're kind of just going to jump into this report and the dynamics that it unfolds in, in Chicago. But it's important to note that this is not, that while this report is, is specific to Chicago, the, the issues of informality and precarious work are both national concerns within Black communities and Latinx communities, but they're also international issues. But we'll focus largely on Chicago today. So I guess the first thing I want to do is really think about or kind of offer some background on equity and transformation. So perhaps, Rich, you can kind of start by describing what the organization does and why it's needed and how it was formed. Yeah. So thank you, Stacey and, and, and Nick for joining the conversation. I'm excited to get this started. Um, again, my name is Richard Wallace, he, him, his, and I'm the founder at Equity and Transformation. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization 
that was established in 2018. Um, we were founded by system impacted and formerly incarcerated people from the state of Illinois. And the ultimate goal was to really begin to lift up the voices of folks who have been most excluded um, from the labor market, right, historically. Our mission is to build social and economic equity for Black Chicagoans engaged in the informal economy. Um, we consider the informal economy a diversified set of economic opportunities that our folks engage in in order to provide subsistence where there is none. What we do is that we build comprehensive campaigns that are rooted in research, policy development, base building, advocacy, and communications. Um, so I'm excited to be here and kind of discuss more about it. And Nick, why don't you just give a little background in terms of how, why you ended up writing this report and how that came to be, and then we'll kind of jump into the details of the content of it. Rich and I got hooked up by um, a mutual friend, Stephen Pitts, at the University of California Berkeley Labor Center. And Stephen knew I'd been doing work on the informal economy for years. And I was especially interested in several aspects of EAT's mission. I was interested in the, the kind of inquiry that the organization was trying to make about the driving causes of informality, what it meant for uh, workers in the segment of the economy. Uh, but I was also interested in the political mission of the organization, both to be involved in active organizing of workers to try to change conditions in their work, in their neighborhood, and in society more broadly, and also this political challenge uh, for organizations to be involved in research, in trying to frame public debates. Uh, and so part of my role is to assist organizations in doing that, in demystifying and democratizing the research process so we can get a deeper understanding of societal issues and hopefully lead to some, some societal change. Yeah, Rich, can you explain why? I mean, that's um, somewhat atypical in, in a lot of advocacy groups um, <laughs> to really take on that both opportunity and burden with <laughs> regard yeah. to research, yeah? Yeah, well, so in 2018, right before I, I landed uh, Equity and Transformation, I was in labor organizing. And I organized in, in different, <laughs> I guess, different sectors within the labor economy, one of which was the, um, the temp labor sector. And when I was in the temp labor sector, there was two issues that rose. And if folks don't know what temp labor is, that's like staffing agencies. Essentially, you go there and you ask them to purchase you for a day to work. It's a very exploitive relationship, right? Um, and so I ended up writing my senior thesis on it, and I began organizing around temp labor rights. And what two issues are basically arose, it was exploitation on one end and then discrimination on the other end. Um, the discrimination was was experienced mostly by black folks. Um, the exploitation was what was going on um, with an undocumented workforce that was also working there. There was some competition that came up between the two working groups. Um, and due to the competition that was ultimately embedded by the by the owners, um, tensions rose between black and Latino workers. And so what we were able to do is to kind of lift those contradictions up, or lift those tensions up to provide clarity. And when clarity was finally set, what you what we realized is that they were discriminating against black folks and they were exploiting these undocumented workers because of the value of their labor, right? Like they could extract more money, right? So there was like this tension like, oh, well, the Latino workers get chosen first, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're able to kind of expose that in order to bring about solidarity, right? That the tensions that existed 
weren't because black folks and Latino folks were at odds with each other. It's because the owners were creating that tension, right? So I think that was one of the things that, that kind of led me to deeper analysis around what happens to the black folks after they're discriminated though, right? Like, okay, so they're not getting into the temp labor sector, which is one of the last buildings on the block as it relates to employment. Um, so where are they actually landing? And I knew from my own experience that our journey uh, to acquire subsistence doesn't end at unemployment, that it goes so much deeper than that. In my own personal experience, I lived four or five years of my life without ever getting a paycheck, right? So I understood that I like our drive in order to, you know, create some form of uh, capital so that we can sustain ourselves goes beyond traditional labor. I had a fellowship that took me to South Africa and I also had some experiences in Benin. And I often say that like, yo, you think we hustle here in Chicago, like go, go to Africa and see what's really real. Right. Um, and so while I was there, you know, I saw the open air markets and I, and I, and I had a lot of conversations with folks on the ground there and they explained to me like, yeah, well we can, you know, most of the products that we sell, we, we harvest ourselves. And I was just like, man, like what would happen if we could harvest our own products in Chicago, right? At scale, right? Like what could possibly be created through those avenues? Not to say that the conditions there were like the most glorious conditions in the world, but at the same time, their ability to acquire resources to buy the things that they needed um, was there for them in ways that they weren't there for us in the U.S. So I came back and I was like, well, I want to look at black informality. So I started Google searching and you can't find barely any information on black informality in the United States. It's almost looked at like it doesn't exist. And I was like, how could you possibly think in a state where you have one of the highest rates of black unemployment, um, where you have one of the highest racial wealth gaps, that our people haven't created alternative systems for survival. And so it became my mission to build an institution, an organization, a movement that could hold and anchor those people, because I knew that they existed, right? And then the research essentially became a tool that we could use to inform both the academics, the philanthropic institutions, and the organizing community about this particular population. And in my, in my perspective and the way I looked at it is like these folks are some of the most impacted and affected people in the United States. They have no access to labor in, 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 a, in a society that demands that you have access to labor in order to live, right? That the social contract essentially is that you exchange your labor for a wage, you use that wage to buy the things you need. Um, but what does it mean when people are denied historically that opportunity to exchange their labor for a wage? Right. And so I wanted to be able to really kind of understand what that meant and um, and learn. You know, I reached out and I realized that I'm not a professor, so I can't do it. So I was like, hey, Nick. <laughs> and Nick stepped in and we we're able to, to complete the study. So I'm excited with what, what we ended up with. Yeah. I have a couple of questions just to clarify some of the wonderful things you just shared. Well, one being um, this idea of informality. I think we should perhaps explain that to folks a bit more? I mean, you, you talked about them not, folk individuals not having access to the labor market, right? Where you would actually sell your labor. So then what is this informality? And then the two, was it that you didn't find it because you were looking up black informality or is there just a dearth of information on the kind of informal economy in the US more broadly? Right, I'll take it one step at a time. So one, informality is Eric Garner. Uh, a black man that was killed for selling loose cigarettes. Informality is Alton Sterling. 
um, a black man that was killed by selling DVDs. Informality is Kiana Blankley and the countless trans and cisgender commercial sex workers that are killed every year. So it is omnipresent. We just don't, we haven't, we haven't been able to put language to it, right? The second part of the question was that there is information on informality, very little. Um, and I like to use Nick's term, we have to remedy the absence of actionable information on Black informality, right? Like there was no information when I say that around Black informality. And also when, as it related to other communities within Chicago, specifically um, undocumented workers, there's a robust language as it relates to informality. And I really think about one way to look at equity and transformations work is to look at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And what they were able to do is to change and shift the narrative around labor and informal labor to the point where people are able to both articulate it, but then also be in movement formation to support those workers. When you think about our five-year strategies to get to the point where people understand and make the connection between Alton Sterling and capitalism, right? <laughs> and, make, and, and be able to see that contradiction and that a lot of our folks are surviving on the outskirts of this mammoth institution um, that is producing, you know, billions of dollars in surplus for the, the owners within this world. You know, we got the Jeff Bezos of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have people that are on the outside, just barely getting by, doing the best that they can. And they're being killed by the police in the process. You know, for me, that's that's the piece that we were trying to lift up. Mm-hmm. And Nick, I'm going to come to you and just ask a little bit more. Maybe you can offer a little bit more in terms of the question around informality, um, your work extends kind of well beyond Chicago, well beyond the U.S. Can you just explain how that maybe some of the similarities or differences in terms of informality that you've written about elsewhere and then perhaps how you're, you're seeing it here? Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in other studies with social movement organizations, such as, as the National Day Labor Organizing Network, which... Uh, focus on day laborers who stand in public spaces looking for work in the construction industry or work with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, where we looked at informally employed nannies, caregivers, and housekeepers. So I think we had some views into the informal economy in the United States, folks that are working off the books, uh, usually paid in cash, uh, and in very insecure employment relations. But this was usually synonymous with mainly immigrant populations. And there wasn't really attention from a policymaker standpoint, from a media standpoint, from a general public's recognition of this, of the extent of informality that exists in African-American communities. And, and one of the reasons that informality is so pervasive is because of the persistently high levels of unemployment that exists in these communities. And so I think what we've tried to do here in, the, in this report and in each work more generally, is to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit and to peer into this economy to understand why it has come into being and what it means for the workers who are involved in it. What's causing this, um, this level of inequality that's disproportionately affecting Black communities? I mean, in the report, you have some staggering figures. And, those, and, and one thing that's really important that you note is that the unemployment rate while significantly higher in Black communities, doesn't fully capture it because there's a number of people that are out of the labor force. So perhaps you can just share what are some of those numbers and why? (laughs) Why are we seeing this? Yeah, so if we roll back the clock to just before the pandemic, it feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? But at that time in in December of 2019, 
in the Chicago metropolitan area, the official unemployment rate was 2.8%. As impressive as that statistic is, it really masks uh, a second trend, and that has been persistently high unemployment uh, among African-Americans. Illinois has, has continually had the highest Black unemployment rate in the country. Levels of African-American unemployment in the region have changed little during what had been the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. If you look at it, since 2010, the needle on Black unemployment barely moved. And let's not even get too deep into the questions of youth unemployment. As UIC's Great Cities Institute has shown, the levels of Black youth unemployment, 45, 50%. And all of this is before the pandemic, right? Then the pandemic hits. And these, these numbers, I don't think we understand fully the toll the pandemic has taken on, on uh, poverty and unemployment in the Chicago area or across this country. Uh, but we've got a very serious problem before the pandemic, and it's only been made worse since. And Stacey, as you mentioned, yeah, the, the so-called discouraged workers, those who have given up looking for work because they, they go to look for work, the doors are closed. Maybe it's because they, they continually encounter racial discrimination in the job market. Maybe they have a, a disability or some other issue that, that makes it more difficult for their work. Maybe their work history is scarred by the mark of a felony record. It could be any number of these things, but the level of discouragement in high unemployment neighborhoods means that our sense of the unemployment there is woefully underrepresented. So how are people getting by um, trying to stay afloat? You know, you, you I think appropriately uh, titled the report Survival Economies. What, what are people doing? Uh, I guess I, I can I can start. I mean, I grew up in uh, a world of informality. Like I often use the term we hustle to survive. And there's there's like a negative connotation to that because there's a there's a lack of connection to the reality of, of, of people, of black people in this in this state. Right. And in this country. Right. Like, what does it mean to not have a job? Like we really got to heighten what that means for folks like that is specifically in a, in a country that is organized the way that ours is. Um, and so for me and growing up in those experiences, I knew people that were barbers, that were hair braiders, that were childcare workers. You know, like we pay for childcare is like fourteen hundred dollars a month. There's no way you can pay that if you work at minimum wage in the city, in the state of Illinois and pay for housing and pay for food and pay for transportation, there's no way. So there obviously is that people have to work within their own networks in order to ensure there's childcare, right? And there was a recent article that came out about a mother that left her kids in, the, in, in her car while she went inside to clean, uh, I think it was like hotel rooms, right? Everybody was like critiquing the mother, critiquing the mother, critiquing the mother, like bad mom, bad mom, bad mom. It's bad state. It's like the conditions drive the, the reactions of the people and whatnot, right? And so our folks are are doing the best that they can. And I think when we talk about informal occupations, it's all that. It is the bootleg DVD salesperson, is the loose square seller. I grew up on the block with the candy lady, right? Um, and, and, and so, and like, and, and then my sister used to sell plates at the after party, right? So people would have <laughs> parties and there was an after party and she would come and sell plates, right? So I knew that it was always in the mist, um, but it was like, how do we begin to carve out some language around this um, and begin to amplify this so that we can, ensure that interventions reach this space. And so those are the ones that come, but I, I think Nick has a more robust list of, of the occupations that came up. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll share the list in a moment, but I, I first want to share just the experience of one of the women we spoke to. Uh, she was a, a young woman, a college student, uh, who was operating an informal daycare service right out of her apartment. Uh, her clients were parents who worked the late shift in factories and warehouses. And so she would provide, she would go to, to college during the day, and in the evening when the parents were doing second and third shifts at factories and warehouses, she was taking care of the kids. On the weekends, she would take in children from 7 in the morning to 11 p.m. at night. Now, when, when she graduated from high school, uh, her first job, she couldn't find anything. So her first job was as a hairstylist, also operating right out of her apartment, even though uh, running a business like that out, out of her apartment could have caused her to, to lose her lease. But work, work was slow and it didn't pay a lot. So then she transitioned and started selling submarine sandwiches uh, in an area near her apartment. And then she also was going down into the loop to sell submarine sandwiches. She also tried selling cookies on the CTA and candy uh, near the red line and blue line stations of the, of the L. But the problem is that she also copes with a chronic health condition. So working outdoors and doing that kind of sales was posing a health risk, which led her to this childcare business. So I think just as Rich was explaining, this kind of work in the informal economy, a lot of it is based on, on improvisation and, and trial and error. You know, as Rich said, it's hustling and it, it's working day by day, hustling day by day to survive. And the folks we surveyed and the folks we interviewed are involved in a whole range of activities, house cleaning, childcare, street vending, doing hair. Uh, it's the car mechanic who works on the street. It's, uh, it's a person who sells the loose cigarettes. Uh, the scrap metal recycler. And, and what was interesting about this was the variety and the way in which these activities get packaged together, that, that folks were rarely reliant on one thing, because one thing's never going to pay enough. Uh, but but they're instead improvising, trying things, experimenting, and, and cobbling together a livelihood uh, while working off the books. One thing that I thought was... Um quite interesting. I guess maybe it's two things that are in the report that you might want to speak to is your choice in focusing on these practices, on this hustle, all of which are legal in other contexts, right? You chose not to focus on other types of sales, like, you know, if they're illicit sales, but they're only criminalized because they're not regulated by the state, right? I know these are the stories that people shared in terms of how they're hustling. But I think a lot of folks don't recognize that when we talk about informality, we're actually talking about work that, that we, we purchase all the time, right? I mean, so perhaps you can kind of elaborate on that. I mean, for one, I think that this is just the beginning, right? We, this was a project that didn't have much funding. I just hadn't, we, I had an idea and Nick came on and was like, oh, let's do it. You know, so we didn't have the, I think the next report, we can go deeper. Right. I think that's one thing is, but this was a good starting point, a good entry. But I mean, it covers the entire gambit. Like I came from hip hop, right? I was a rapper before I was into any of this stuff. Right. I mean, that entire career was all informal. We toured, we got paid in cash and then we go to the next spot and we get paid in cash. So that there, there's connections between the music, which we love. And there's a lot of rappers out there that don't understand or don't see themselves as informal workers, but that is exactly what we are. A lot of the demands that that exist within the formal economy, the anti-black racism that exists there doesn't exist here. It is like you can show up as your whole self and work and hustle. Right. And, and you don't have to cut off your dreadlocks. 
You ain't got to you ain't got to code switch for those hours of that day. There's a whole lot of freedoms that are also associated with this that are, that are also go they go undercover. Right. But it shows up in hip hop. I mean, I remember showing a picture to my nephew. It was a black man in a business suit. And then there was a black dude that was like that had, had chains on or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And I said, I asked him, I said, which one do you you know, which one do you think is successful? And he was like, he, he pointed to the dude with the with the with the gold chains and everything like that. And I said, why? And he's like, because he gets to be himself. And I was like, wow. You know, I, I just think that that's an important piece to lift up. Part of this is that there's a lot of anti-black racism in the formal economy as well. We have to address those anti-black racist tendencies within the formal economy to make space for our people in a real deep and meaningful way. I think it's also about the perceptions. I mean, as you read here, of the illegality, right? And the informal. People assume, oh, informal means illegal. And that's, I think it's more nuanced. It is, but there, there's a transformation that occurs uh, with certain commodities as they move through this economy. Take something like cigarettes, right? Cigarettes can be purchased in Indiana. It's a, it's a legitimate purchase of cigarettes in Indiana. But then they get transported to Illinois. Suddenly they become bootleg goods. You take the carton apart. Uh, you break the seal. There isn't the tax stamp there. And now the c- cigarettes are being sold individually. And so that, that good, that commodity was, went from licit to illicit uh, during that process. Same thing with homemade cookies and sandwiches, right? They are licit products until you sell them at, at CTA train stations. And that act alone suddenly renders it illicit. Same thing with auto repair. Uh, auto repair is not illegal, but if you do it on the street, it is. And so that's an interesting dynamic of this economy that you see the transformation of these goods and services moving from licit to illicit um, just because of who and how those goods and services are being provided. Yeah, I want I want to add a piece to that because it's a lot about the licensing. And so credentialism plays a major role in this. And so how that showed up in like the cannabis fight that we were in in Illinois, which is another piece that one of our first campaigns was around cannabis equity, is that occupations that exist in the informal economy are not fixed. They often migrate from informal to formal. When they migrate from informal to formal, there's generally a lack of retention in black bodies on the other end of the spectrum. But the institution that formalizes informal occupations is the state. So there's something that happens intentionally at the state level that prevents access to the economy for black folks on the other end. If you look at bootleg and alcohol, it was an open market, right? <laughs> and there was black folks that were and they were heavily involved in the in the in the in the bootleg of alcohol. When it got formalized, you have black labels and people will be like, "Oh, Ciroc, Ciroc is a label that's put on the bottle, but the production of the alcohol itself is not done by Diddy or is it Diddy? Whoever owns Ciroc, right? And, and so <laughs> And so it, th- that's that's part of it as well. And, and we see the same thing with number running and the lottery. Right. These were systems and 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 hustles, quote unquote, that were informal. And then when they shift to formal, you see a lack of of access for black folks. Cannabis is a new one. Forty seven current dispensaries in the state of Illinois. None of them are black owned. You can see the interest level of black folks. Just historically, there was a whole war on drugs about it. If you want to look at the statistics, of how many of us were involved in this work? Right. And, and criminalized for being involved in this work. Now that it's formalized, we're credentializing it. Who has the capacity and the ability to get those credentials? Right. Who doesn't? I mean, it's a frustrating <laughs> situation to solve. But I think that we focus in on the state because the state is the one that's responsible in those moments where 
um, informal occupations become formalized. So it's about it's something about the the rubric and the credentials that they require that are boxing our folks out. Um, and now you need a a degree to sell weed. Like it's like you need you need a whole <laughs> <laughs> and they professionalize it. So yeah, anyways, that's actually really funny. Um, I mean, because because Nick described one trajectory and you described the other. Nick described the formal to the informal, and you're describing the the informal to the formal. So it goes, you know, it's multidimensional. And um, but what's constant is the state, right? And the state gets to kind of regulate and set the the codes of conduct. Um, and by not obeying those codes of conduct, you you begin to both criminalize not just the practice but the bodies that are not obeying that. And and perhaps I guess I would like to hear a little bit more from you, Rich, as well as uh, Nick, in terms of, of the implications of this, right? So this is both a description of what's happening and how people are surviving, but our policymakers need to hear this because there are some deep implications of this work. Can you kind of speak to that? Well, you know, I think one of this is, is this issue we were just talking about, about the criminalization of, the, of these activities. Uh, a criminalization, as, as Rich mentioned, uh, that cost Eric Gardner his, his life. But if you think about the informal economy occurring within the context of a hollowed out neighborhood economy with manufacturing job loss, retail decline, and underinvestment, if you think about an informal economy that occurs in the context of racial discrimination in the labor market and disparate access to employment. We start to see the criminalization of informal economic activity in a whole new light the criminalization through bans on street vending in certain areas, the criminalization through targeted use of anti-loitering ordinances uh, to discourage informal trading, the crackdown on the selling of of loose cigarettes. All of these are tantamount to using municipal codes to selectively punish the poor. That is something that policymakers need to address and to face. Uh, because we are selectively punishing the poor by using these municipal laws and codes to target individuals who have very little other economic opportunities. That's so true. And I, I'll just I'll just add to it. The, the living example for me was the COVID-19 pandemic and the disbursement orders um, that were handed down by the mayor. There are some folks that were out here that were victims of domestic violence. Some folks were homeless. Some folks had no other occupation but to hit the street and try to make some money so they can run back home. And while other folks were like hoarding toilet paper and paper towels, you had some folks with none at all. Right. And with no grocery stores in, in, the, in, the, in the area to actually shop at. And so folks were still even in the face of the pandemic, in the face of honestly acknowledging that this is this is a pandemic that is hurting us. We have to go out here and hustle in order to bring something in in order to put food on the table. And so instead of like approaching that with care and concern, it was faced with like fear and terror, right? Um, there was police officers. When I first came to Madison and Springfield, right when the pandemic around, it was in March, they had like six or seven young black folks locked up in handcuffs on a curb because of disbursement orders. I asked the officer, I said, what time is the disbursement order going to affect? He said, six o'clock. What are you doing? It's, it's 12 o'clock. You know what I mean? And so they let them, I let them I also told them they're here to get the COVID life kit. And they let them out, they let them out the cuffs to participate in the activity, right? But at the same time, this, this, this is just about criminalizing poor folks, like Nick, Nick just highlighted. And it and it, yeah. So I'm 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 completely in alignment with that with that statement. 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's really important to, to say again and again, because that's one of the things that makes our city uh, kind of a punitive city, the way in which we selectively use regulatory enforcement. Perhaps there's some other stories. I mean, there are some really rich stories that you were able to capture, Nick. Are there some that really stand out that you want to leave with um, the audience? Yeah, I mean, I think another one uh, that intersects with this theme around criminalization um, interviewed a, a young man who grew up in Englewood on Chicago's South Side. As a teenager, he had worked for a fast food restaurant uh, right there in the neighborhood. After graduating from high school, got caught up in something and ended up going to prison for a period of, of time. Um, and then when he comes out, he, he explains uh, quite vividly what he had experienced. Uh, the first thing he said is that the, the doors were shut, you know, a lot faster than he thought they would be. And, and he goes on to say that he, he was amazed on, uh, you know, how does society expect me to reform if I'm at a disadvantage for something I've already technically paid the price for, right? He had done his time in prison. So he comes out after his release from prison. He's, in, he's involved with a halfway house uh, that is charged to assist with his re-entry into the economy and into society. All the jobs are the temp jobs that Rich was talking about earlier today, you know, temp jobs in, in warehouses and, and so on. Very insecure work. Uh, you don't know if you're going to have it from one day to the next. Then he finds that he gets an opportunity. He can work on a construction work site, make $350 a week for full-time work. It's all off the books, $350 a week. It's not a great wage uh, for hard work. That lasts for about five months, and then it drives up, and they don't need him. Now what's he going to do? He hears that there's an opportunity to work off the books. It's a security guard at night outside a liquor store. And now he's in a bind, right? Uh, he's, he's got a felony record, so he's got to be unarmed, yet he's working security at night at a liquor store where things can happen. And, and he just realizes at some point he could wind up hurt or worse. Um, and so he falls out of that job as well. And basically, we've got a, a story here of someone that kind of bounces through uh, the informal economy, trying to find a solid ground to land on, but really bounces from one very, very low wage job to the next. The security job only paid $10 an hour. And this is recently so this is sub-minimum wage working off the books at night in a risky job. It, it shows you that, that folks are willing to go after it and try to make something happen, but the options available to them simply are inadequate. You know, what do we do with all this? I mean, this is, I think this is really rich and people should download this report, go to EAT's uh, website, go to um, the Social Justice Initiative at UIC, go to the Center for Urban Economic Development, which Nick is the director of. The report's there for you to download. But after you read it, what, what, what do we, you want the folks that are listening to do? What do we do with this? Call your legislators and tell them to read it. Every legislator in the state of Illinois needs to read this to understand and really see these are also voters, right? This is a democracy, right? These folks have a voice. I think that's one of the goals of equity and transformation. How do we begin to amplify that voice? It's, for me, it was like a test. We have 80,000 unemployed Black folks who are, I'm saying if we can organize those folks to, be, to begin to demand to our elected officials what it is that they need and what they want, um, we can leverage that to, to create some real substantial change. So I think you know, one, read it, share it with other people, call your local elected official and, and, and tell them, you know, to, to read it as well. What they'll see are these rich stories. They'll see that the economy of Chicago or many other cities is not working for African-Americans. 
Um, and yes, we can push our elected officials, but what are we pushing them to do? Is there anything that stands out uh, to you, Rich? And then I'm going to turn it to Nick. What, what do we, when I call, what am I asking for? What am I saying? Do this. Okay, I think one of the things that we're we're, <laughs> we're we're fighting around is like the use of background checks. We're talking about in a moment where almost every business was putting up, you know, big posters saying Black Lives Matter, the that and the other. These same companies that were saying Black Lives Matter still openly do background checks, which completely, you know, filter out black candidates from employment. What is the point at this point, right? Like for you to do a background check solely so that you could, you know, weed our folks out when you recognize the racial wealth gap, the unemployment statistics, whatever. Also, you know, I think we have initiatives. One of the one of the projects that we're building right now is a guaranteed income pilot project for folks on the West Side. It is um, completely trying to change the narrative, right? Where you see crime as an indicator of need opposed to seeing it as a placement for punishment, right? Right now, we know that 75% of the folks that come home from jail are back in jail within a year. That system the criminal legal system, it doesn't work and it hasn't worked for our people. We have agency over our tax dollars. We get taxed every year and then they determine where they're going to spend it. But we have a right to play a role in that decision making process. So let me finish the, com- the topic about the, the West Garfield Park Futures Fund. We're going to give 55 system impacted folks a guaranteed income over the course of 18 months and track recidivism rates, track psychological wellness, physical functioning, et cetera. We have to begin to establish alternatives. I think any policy person that reads this begin to look up what are the processes around permits? What are the credentials that are getting in the way of these people making it or not even making it? But what are what are the credentials that are producing unsafe conditions for black informal workers? What are what are what are the policies that are in place that need to be rearranged, restructured Um, and then organize campaigns around those. Right. And demand change. Right. I think that is what we do as participants in this democracy is that we organize around the issues, we identify the solutions, and we demand that our legislators introduce them and and push them and place them into law, right? So I think I want advocates and nonprofits and et cetera, movement folks to read this and begin to really be curious about how can we loosen some of the barriers for our folks to change those conditions. Do you see opportunity for the folks that have been informal workers to either enter the formal economy because we've changed the regulatory kind of apparatus, or do you see them entering because they've created opportunities for themselves? It's a both and at the end of the day. I mean, I we go with the agency of the people, right? If the people are saying that we want to enter this formal economy, then we're going to organize interventions and and fight for them to get access to labor. We also know how deep that problem is, right? We understand that there's transphobia, there's anti-Black racism, there's homophobia, there's sexism, all of these things that are within this. I mean, because we embody it. I mean, we feel it, we live in it, right? I know I experience it every day, (laughs) you know, specifically when I was in in some of my other jobs, I know what it felt like to be brilliant and, and, be working at McDonald's and the manager is this white guy that tells you what, you know what I mean? Like it's a very dehumanizing experience for me to tell someone to go to a staffing agency is re- it takes a lot of work. Right. Um, although that may be the only option for them. So I think part of it is definitely beginning to advocate for the formal economy to shift and then follow and be with the will of the informal workers in the direction of where they want to go. Some of that may look like black entrepreneurship. Cause it's like some folks want to create their own, 
little business structure. A lot of our members are like, I got a t-shirt company. I got a cupcake company. I got this. I got that. I got different dreams and ideas, but we're also talking to them about how do we do it in ways that is not exploitive and extractive, et cetera. So it's about really just walking with them, helping provide tools for them to develop the dreams that they want to live in. And, and, you know, of course, um, steer them toward cooperatives, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you um, uh, uh, Nick, so, yeah, what do we do with, I mean, you've been collecting this in Chicago and other places. Where do you imagine this going or what do you imagine we can use this work to change, to make some significant changes? Do you have ideas about that? A bit. I mean, Rich has pointed to the urgency of of interventions, and he's also pointed to interventions that could be rolled out now in the short run. I guess where my focus has been is a little bit more on the long run. What our study has shown is that uh, this country's safety net is in tatters. Workers who are experiencing long-term unemployment have almost nothing to fall back on other than the informal economy. We've got this decades-long underinvestment, uh, disinvestment, in black neighborhoods in Chicago and in cities all across the United States. The the informal economy has emerged in the shadow of that disinvestment. So from an economic development standpoint, from a social policy standpoint, we have got to face up that the the reforms we have made have been destructive, that the underinvestment in social safety nets and economic development programs has consigned uh, neighborhoods to poverty, informality, and and a life of struggle. And we have got to reorient our long-term priorities, even as we implement the short-term initiatives that Rich uh, and his colleagues at EAT have been talking about. Sounds right to me. Well, thank you. I think our time is up. This was uh, extremely informative. And everyone, just go and download the report, um, read it, share it. It's Survival Economies, Black Informality in Chicago. Thank you. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you.